In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. <laughs> I think that's all of them. <laughs> um, during the high priesthood, high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see, shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize, baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Well, good morning, church. No doubt some of you more eagle-eyed among us noticed that... Uh, we were in Luke 1 with the Magnificat, the story of Mary last week, and now we're in Luke 3. We have skipped chapter 2, but don't sweat it. Don't worry. We, uh, New Year's Eve, or excuse me, Christmas Eve falls on Sunday, December 24th, and so we are going to come back to Luke 2 on Christmas Eve in the Sunday morning service. So we're going to jump to chapter 3, and there is a 30-year gap between the end of chapter 1 and the songs and the, and the birth of John and where we are here in chapter 3. 
where the promised forerunner of the Messiah now begins his ministry. John, that, that we were introduced to him back at the beginning of chapter one. He is the son of the high priest, or excuse me, the son of the priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, the, family, the couple who had never had a child. And here, in the beginning of chapter three, he's now an adult man, and he begins his ministry with a bang. You know, God has worked through the centuries, through different kinds of men and women to build his kingdom. And, you know, God does not have a type that you must fit into this form, this mold. He uses people from all kinds of various backgrounds. But when you look at the pages of the scriptures and the Bible, of the Bible and then history itself, you will often find that the men who God calls to preach or to be prophets, while they come from all kinds of various backgrounds, they do have oftentimes something in common. They experience persecution, even death, for carrying out the mission that God has given to them. You go back into the, to the, Bible, the Bible, you have Isaiah, the great prophet, who ends up being sawn in half, executed by being sawn in half by the evil king of Israel, Manasseh. Uh, you go forward a few more years and you come to Jeremiah, the prophet, and he's imprisoned by the king of Israel, of Judah, and in Jerusalem because of his prophecies and predictions of how Jerusalem is going to ultimately fall. You go forward several centuries into the Christian era, 400 AD, you have this man by the name of John Chrysostom, who is the, the great pastor and bishop of the city of Constantinople. And in his preaching, he was so firm in proclaiming the word of God against the decadence and the corruption and the perversion and the materialism that he saw in this wealthy capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire. And it was embodied in the, the Caesar Acadius and his wife, Eudoxia. And Eudoxia, in particular, was the target of many firm sermons, so much that she moved against him and he was exiled and put into a position that was so uh, hard that it ended up killing him. Several centuries later, the reformer, John Calvin, was preaching in Geneva and he makes the city fathers mad. They run him off. And for several years, he's in another city until they finally realize their mistake and they bring him back and that begins the, his ministry, which would so greatly influence the trajectory of the Reformation and even the forming of our nation. Speaking of our nation, in the early 1800s, around 18, in the 1820s, there was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. His circuit was Kentucky and Illinois. He was a, a fascinating guy. And he was a bold preacher. One, one morning, he was in a church, and before the service, the elders pulled him aside, and they said, listen, this morning in the audience in the congregation, General Andrew Jackson, who was about to become the president, he is here in our congregation. He's very powerful. He has the ability to influence and even shut down our denomination. So please be guarded in what you say in your sermon this morning. And so Peter Cartwright stepped up to the pulpit when it was his time, and he said, I've been told by the elders that General Andrew Jackson is in the audience and that I should guard my comments. So this is what I have to say. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent of his sins. <laughs> uh, our passage this morning 
gives us insight into the ministry of John the Baptist. And I have no doubt that he would have appreciated the boldness of Chrysostom and Calvin and Cartwright as he too preached the need for repentance. And ultimately, as the last couple of verses in our passage allude to, he pays the price for his boldness. He's arrested and executed because of how he offends Herod Antipas and his wife. This morning's message is going to focus on the central theme that is in John the Baptist's preaching. This word repentance, it is an important word. For at the heart of the gospel is heartfelt repentance. Heartfelt repentance is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. It's at the core of our message. So to understand this word, we're going to really dig into it this morning. We're going to break this passage down into the messenger, the meaning, the marks, and the magnitude of repentance. And we're going to start with the messenger of repentance. In these opening six verses, we're given a picture of the of this prophet, John the Baptist. So did you understand, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, Jesus will say shortly after these events that he is the greatest of all of the prophets that have come through those centuries. In this passage, Luke begins the part that Jonathan stumbled over. Luke, the historian, was uh, acting in a very historian-type way. In those opening two verses, he gives us six historical markers so that we can peg the exact time frame that this ministry begins. We know that it's at least 25 AD because Pontius Pilate doesn't become the governor of Judea and Jerusalem until 25 AD. But we have another marker that's even more clear. It's the 15th year of Caesar Tiberius's reign. Depending upon which ceremony you start with, this means it is either 28 or 29 AD. So John the Baptist and Jesus at this point are men in their young 30s, 32, 33 years of age. And this year is an important year in the history of Israel. That's verse 2 tells us, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. For, the, for over 400 years, God has been silent. The Israelites have not heard from God. There's been no prophet bringing to them the message of God. Here, 28, 29 AD, that silence has been ended. And God is now speaking through John the Baptist. He's a prophet from God. But church, I don't care if you look at him through modern eyes or ancient eyes, this dude was just a little bit weird, <laughs> okay? He's out there. Uh, Mark chapter 1 uh, tells, gives us a picture. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he lived in, this, in the wilderness. Now, Trust me, there is nothing you can do to locust and honey that makes them taste good. I know this for a fact, okay? It is disgusting. And the wilderness that he lived in was dangerous. It was filled with lions and hyenas, vipers and snakes and criminals. It was a very un unhospitable area. And then when you think about his clothing, how do you make this look good? Okay, ladies, there is no way to accessorize a camel hair cloak. Okay, it's disgusting. 
It stinks. It's not going to be on the runways of Paris, Milan, or New York anytime soon. Guarantee it. So this guy is out there, and he's living a very severe, ascetic form of life. But even though he may have lived and dressed kind of weirdly, John the Baptist understood his mission. It was crystal clear. Luke gives it to us in verse 4, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. These words are significant. It's, it's hearkening back to the, an ancient tradition in that part of the world in that time when a king or a dignitary was going to come visit a city. The citizens of the city would go down the road and out across the pathways for several miles, and they would make sure that, you know, that all the obstacles were removed, fallen trees, boulders, bad you know, washouts. Everything is prepared so that that journey by the king or by the emperor had no interference. He was able to make an easy journey. And so in the Isaiah passage, the prophecy here that Luke is quoting, the king who is coming is God himself. But before God comes to bring salvation to his people, he's going to send somebody who would make the path and the roads straight and clear out all of the obstacles. Before he could come, this had to be done. And so this mission is given to John the Baptist to clear out all of these obstacles, spiritually, uh, spiritual obstacles in mind. He's the fulfillment of the last promise that God had given to the Israelites at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 before he goes silent. And in Malachi chapter 4, we read these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now we understand why John the Baptist would wear such an ugly outfit. An outfit of camel hair and a leather belt, living in the wilderness, eating this kind of diet, living this hard Form of ascetic life. This is an exact replica of the life of Elijah. You read in 1 Kings that he wore a garment of camel hair with a leather belt and he lives in the world. He understands his mission. He is the new Elijah come to prepare the way of God. He's the link between the old covenant and the age of promise with the new covenant and the age of fulfillment. He's the forerunner who prepares the way and removes the obstacles. And the biggest obstacle that has to be removed is the enslaved hearts of God's people to sin. They had to repent as the king was now coming. Let's think about that word repentance and examine the meaning of repentance. It says that he went around the region preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Literally, 
That word repentance means a change of mind. Now, that may not seem significant to many of you. Some of you, like me this morning, may have gone into your closet. It was time to get dressed. You might have initially chosen a pinkish colored shirt like I did or some other. And then you changed your mind and you grabbed a blue shirt. Okay, a change of mind. The word for repentance here is not just a simple change of mind like you change your shirt. In the scriptures, it's referring to the fact that God is doing a work of grace in our lives so that our thinking and our attitude and our disposition towards our sin is completely reversed. It is us going in one direction, pursuing sinful desires, sinful lusts, sinful ideas and coming to the realization that this is wrong and what God says is right and going in an opposite direction. The lexicon Laonida, the Laonida lexicon defines the word repentance in this way, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Repentance. You know, next week, uh, the 29th is known as Reformation Sunday. It's the Sunday that falls right before October 31st. You see, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, sparking the Protestant Reformation. Those 95 Theses were copied and printed on this new invention, the printing press, and it was distributed throughout Europe, and it turned the world upside down. The very first of his 95 theses, which were protests to the Pope about the condition of the church, had to do with repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Church, at the heart of the gospel is heartfelt repentance. Heartfelt means that it's more than just feelings of guilt or conviction or sorrow or remorse, even though those emotions may be present. It is being convinced in our innermost being that whatever form our sin takes, whatever we believe about our sin and why we would engage in that, God's verdict about it, God's declaration about it is actually true. Our belief is false. His statement is true. And because of this, we embrace what he says and go in the opposite direction from what we have believed. This is repentance. True repentance is much more than remorseful words and emotions. True repentance, repentance that is rooted in the heart, leads to a changed life in very practical ways. And this brings us to the meat of John's message, the marks of repentance. As you look at his preaching to these men and women in Israel in 29 AD, there's really four characteristics of repentance that he gives us so that we can understand what it looks like. The very first of which is humility. It says he went around a region proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That word baptism is significant in this verse. You see, in the, Israel, the world of Israel, Jews did not get baptized in the way that John the Baptist was now baptizing. 
the, the, the Israelites, they would do uh, what we would call ceremonial washings. It's still the word baptizo. In the Greek, it's, it's a form of a baptism, but it's really just a ceremonial cleansing. In other words, you're out in the marketplace and you accidentally touch a Gentile. You're now unclean. You need to be purified. And you would go through a ritual purification at home before you would eat your meal. Or say your couch got defiled because a pig got into your house and jumped on it. You would baptize your couch but that didn't mean you immersed it in a bunch of water. You would sprinkle it ceremonially, and now it's been purified. So Israelites would do these ceremonial cleansings, but if you were a Gentile and you were converting out of your pagan religion to the, to the religion and the faith of the Old Testament Jews of Israel and to Judaism, you went through baptism. This was a bodily form of baptism. You may be, be sprinkled or poured or dunked or dipped or something, but you were baptized as part of your conversion from being a, Gentile, a pagan Gentile to now being part of God's people. So get the significance of this. John is preaching to all of these Israelites, and here's the thrust of his message. You're no different than the pagan Gentiles. You're in such bad condition. You are so enslaved to your sin that you need to be baptized like the Gentiles are baptized. Do you realize how offensive that would be to a Jew in that day? It's very offensive, but yet this message was going out so much with the power of the Holy Spirit. John is filled with the Spirit that many of these people are being convicted in the core of their soul. You're right, I'm in bondage to sin. I've been running from God. I repent. I want to follow after God. And they're so sincere about this, they're willing to be humbled and be baptized like a pagan Gentile. Characteristic of true repentance always is humility. Another characteristic, as we've already mentioned in passing, is that it is heartfelt. In other words, in our innermost being, we sincerely desire God's forgiveness through Jesus, and we want to live for him. It's a sincere desire to turn from sin and live for Jesus. Now, this was not the case for many who came to John the Baptist. Apparently, uh, there was a good number of them that were suffering from first century FOMO. They were, they were afraid of missing out on the excitement, and they were there. He says to them in verse 7, why have you come out here, you brood of vipers? <laughs> I wonder why he got executed. Um, <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We know from other passages that the common people were flocking out to this wilderness area to hear John, but along with them were coming Pharisees and Sadducees and political leaders from places like Jerusalem or Samaria and other places. And, and they were very religious, and they were here to, hey, what's going on? It's kind of like the excitement. It spread everywhere, and 
I mean, after all, they didn't have 500 channels to entertain them, so let's go to where the entertainment is. And they, they go out to John, and of course, they're very religious, and they're very impressive, and people look up to them, and now this baptism is going on. And of course, we're children of Abraham. We're spiritual. We'll be baptized too. But John saw through the pretense. He saw through the hypocrisy. They just wanted to appear to be holy, but he knew down deep that they were pretending their life was filled with self-reliance and pride and arrogance. They essentially were convinced that they were already good with God. They didn't need to repent, as he was saying. They weren't that bad that they required themselves to be humble and fall on their face before God and ask for forgiveness and to, as proof of that forgiveness to be baptized. But then again, maybe we will be baptized because we want people to think good of us. So we better go through the motions. This was all for them just a, a social exercise to build credibility with others. I wonder how often that's present in churches today. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? Are you here because this is just something we should do? Because after all, I'm a, you know, I'm a good person, I'm a spiritual. Or are you here... Because in your heart, you love Jesus. That he is that important to you. That you realize he deserves this time of corporate worship. And that you need this fellowship and this preaching of the God's word and the worship that takes place. Because in your inner man, you still struggle with sin, but you want to follow God. Is that why you're here this morning? Or is it just a show? Is it just a ritual? Are you just here because your parents won't let you sleep in? Teenagers? Why are you here this morning? You, oftentimes in a church, people, there are a group of people who are in the same category as these broods of vipers and they're blind to it. God help us. Why are you here? There's humility. There's heartfelt desire to turn from sin and embrace Jesus. There's true repentance. It, when it's present, it changes our relationships with others. Third characteristic, you see it in verse 10. The crowd's asking, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise as God's grace of repentance does its work in our lives, it changes how we see ourselves and it changes how we see other people. As we experience the generosity of God's grace in Christ and the mercy of his forgiveness, it produces the fruit of generosity. It produces the desire to give mercy like we've received mercy and this desire presents itself in a very practical way. True repentance leads to a change of life in a very practical manner. It, it prompts us to move towards people who need mercy and grace, not away from them. It encourages us and changes how we respond to those who, like us, are broken and savaged by sin 
who need to have gospel restoration brought to their lives because we have experienced the very gospel restoration, the mercy, the grace that they need. We understand where they are. We understand the poverty of spiritual sin and enslavement to sin. And there's a change in our lives. Rather than judging and standing superior to them, we want to move towards those who need this kind of grace and mercy. There's humility. It's a characteristic. It's heartfelt. It's sincere. It changes and transforms our relationship with other people. There's a fourth one. The repentant heart is at war with the idols of our fallen nature. If you look in verse 12, tax collectors came to him and be back. Aren't you glad to know that humanity hasn't changed? Taxes are as hated back then as they are today, right? Tax collectors, they come to him to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. You see, the average person did not like, they despised the tax collectors because they were so crooked, they ripped people off, and they could do nothing about it. And the soldiers would be the equivalent to the law enforcement of that day. They were, they were charged with keeping the peace, and they would, some of them would abuse their power in order to enrich themselves. If you look at these two groups carefully, they, they're actually very similar to one another. There's a commonality here. It's greed. And greed, the Bible tells us, is idolatry. The greed of the tax collector is expressed through deceptive means where he could collect more money than what he actually was supposed to. And the greed of the soldier was expressed through the abuse of power so that he could get more money. But greed, it's satisfied through this deception and abuse of power, is simply a mask for deeper idolatries. The tax collector, the soldier, depending upon who they were, what was really going on was their desire for comfort, their worship of comfort, or their worship of security, financials, their worship of fame and recognition. This is what's going on in their lives, and it's just expressed as greed. In fact, if you look at this passage carefully, you will see that even in the earlier examples, what ties all of this together, if you want to know that you're repentant, and that repentance is heartfelt, how do you view your stuff? Money, resources, possessions. Do you give to the poor, to the merciful, to the person who is in need? Are you willing to share and split your possessions to help the person who is needing that grace and mercy? Do you see these things belonging to God, or do you covet them? And you'll abuse power and you'll be deceptive in order to get more of it. Do you see the distinction here? This is heartfelt repentance. And heartfelt repentance, church, is at the heart of the gospel. It is humble. It is sincere. It transforms our lives so that we reject greed and whatever idolatrous manifestation it takes. It changes how we relate to one another. There's the messenger of repentance, the marks of it, the the, the meaning of it, the marks of it. And now let's close out with the magnitude of repentance. In verses 15 to 18, it tells us that John's preaching is so powerful 
He's so filled with the Holy Spirit that the people, as they listen to them, begin to wonder and ask him, are you the Messiah? Are, are you the Messiah that we should be worshiping? And he says, ho, 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 hold on now. I'm not the Messiah. I'm the forerunner. The one who's coming after me is so mighty, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals and then wash his feet. In other words, John the Baptist was saying the most lowly task that a normal Jew could not perform on, on another person, only a slave could do this kind of task, taking off the sandals and washing the feet. He says, I'm so low compared to who's coming, I'm not worthy to do the slave's task. I mean, after all, I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with spirit and fire. And then ultimately, one day, he is going to separate the believers from the unbelievers, ushering the believers into eternal life and the unbelievers into eternal damnation. That's who's coming. And then we read in verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So there was a a pastor and a writer scholar in the last century by the name of Dr. William Barclay, very well respected, and he's a good man. But when he came to this passage, these words, he responded with extreme skepticism. He says, What good news? The only thing here is wrath and judgment and bad news. There's no good news in John's message. Now, as great as a guy as he is, I think Dr. Barr was, he's dead now. I think Dr. Barclay missed it. Yes, the good news of the gospel is in this passage. For example, it's good news when John the Baptist says, hey, I'm just the warm-up act. I'm just preparing the way. And that's good news. Why? Because God is coming to save his people. I'm here because God is now going to fulfill his covenantal promises to his people, and he's going to save us. This is good news. This message of repentance, even today, as we focus on it, it's good news because this message of repentance prepares the way for Jesus who still comes to sinners. Philip Ryken says that repentance is the on-ramp to salvation. I like that image. Repentance is the on-ramp to salvation. If we want God to save us, we must turn away from our sins. There's good news in this passage. Verse 17 is a hard verse to hear. I understand why Dr. Barclay would respond. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I mean, that's not the most pleasant thing to think about, is it? This picture that one day King Jesus will be the judge of all humanity. But you see, in the gospel, the gospel does not gloss over the bad news of sin and judgment. It faces it head on so that we can understand the consequences of rejecting Jesus. Are you rejecting Jesus this morning? Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? Understand that if he is not, and if this does not change, if you do not repent of your sin and your self-righteousness and your self-worship and all of your ideas about yourself of how good you are and begin to understand that you are a sinner that needs to be 
forgiven by your creator. And the way that that happens is by committing your life to Christ. If this does not happen in your life, your destiny is eternal banishment from God, a horrendous punishment. Unquenchable fire is the image given to us. This is, this is a horrible picture of what happens to those who do not repent and worship their creator but at the same time, it's good news. Because Jesus still comes to sinners who repent. Because repentance is the on-ramp to salvation. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Is this you this morning? Have you come to a place, maybe even now in your heart, maybe you're new to our church, or perhaps you've continually come, but this morning, for some reason, in your heart, what is being said is resonating. You understand, yes, there is something wrong deep inside of me. I need to, I need to do business with God. It starts by recognizing that you're a sinner who cannot impress God with all of the good things that you may do for the entirety of your life. It is nothing compared to the holiness of God and that your hope is in Jesus Christ who comes to sinners who are willing to repent. Do you want to repent this morning? At the close of the service, I, if, if you have this yearning in your heart, I hope that you don't go to the parking lot without addressing it. The scriptures say that salvation comes today. Today is the day of salvation. Come see me after the service and we'll meet together or, or stop by our care table. We have Stephen ministers and elders who are ready and willing to help you understand what it means to repent and to guide you in this need. But Christian, as we think about this passage, understand that a repentant heart, there's good news here because a repentant heart, according to John the Baptist, is evidence that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit and that he is now at work in your life bringing about the fruits of repentance. Our water baptism points to this more important internal, eternal baptism. It, it happens when we trust in Christ. When we commit our lives to Christ, the scriptures say, we are then baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit and fire, these two terms go together. The moment you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence and he is at work in your life sanctifying and cleansing and uh, turning your attention so that the corruption of your sin can be addressed. He's at work peeling back. Can, can somebody please address that back there and have them stop? Thank you. Sorry, it was, it was, I can handle a lot of distraction, but that was getting to me. The Holy Spirit is at work peeling back the layers of your idolatries and provoking the desire to repent, to cry out to Jesus as we see his presence in our lives. He is this unstoppable presence that will continue to work on us until his sanctification, our sanctification is complete. But understand something, his work is not always pleasant. It's not always enjoyable. He brings the fire to purify our faith just as the jeweler heats up the gold. And he turns up the heat on that precious metal so that it is 
purified and the, the dross and the, the impurities are over and over again removed. And he goes through this cycle, heating and refining and refining and purifying. And he does this until finally, when he looks into that precious metal, he is able to see his own reflection perfectly. And this is what the Holy Spirit does to us through the fire of conviction when we sin. Through the fire of tribulation and trial, he refines us. And God encourages us with the promise and the gospel. This heat, this fire, this presence of the Holy Spirit, there's a promise here. This refining fire is not punishment. It isn't because God is mad at his children that he's angry with us instead. It's because he loves us so much that he intends to transform us into the image of Jesus. And his promise is that this refining fire will not fail. That he will finish this work. It is not a waste of time. It is not fruitless. And I know sometimes it feels that way. Especially when you are in bondage to a particular sin. And you struggle with it over and over and over again. But understand that this change of direction that we undergo, it takes different forms depending upon the sin that we're experiencing. You know, you think about changing direction. If a human being, if I'm walking this way, I can quickly change direction and go the other way. You know, there's some sins in our lives that, oh my goodness, and we just turn from it. But then there are some sins, <laughs> they're like ocean liners. You know, you know an ocean liner uh, when, when, you, when an ocean liner needs to turn direction, it doesn't just turn around like a human being can. It takes miles. It takes time. It's agonizingly slow. It has to first come to a stop, and that takes a long time. And then it has to make the turn, and then it has to gild speed up. And all of that looks like it's not changing. But guess what? It is changing. It just takes time for that change to really become evident. And some of us, we're in sin and we're repenting of sins, and we're boom. And some of us, we're in the ocean liner stage with that sucker because it's a hard sin in our life. But be assured of this. This refining fire will be successful. And just as that jeweler looks into the gold and sees his reflection, the scriptures tell us one day we shall see Jesus as he is and we will be like him. So when you experience the fire, whatever form it takes this week, don't run from it. Rejoice in it. It is evident. It is evidence that you are a child of God filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you. As hard as it is to sometimes rejoice in suffering, sometimes it is so hard to deal with the conviction that comes into our lives, the Holy Spirit, as he brings sin to our attention. As difficult as that is, we thank you. And Lord, we would ask that you would move in all of our hearts this morning. Some here, Lord, are like those Pharisees and Sadducees who came for baptism, and it was just a show. They need heart change. And Lord, if you're doing that work in their heart this morning, give them the, the power to respond even today. And Lord, for all of us who have you in our hearts through your spirit, may you cause us to be sensitive to your leading this week. In your name we pray. Amen.